according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're here this morning, as always, aren't we, for the purpose of growth? We're here for the, uh, what are we here for? The fun and games, the entertainment, and the dancing girls. Dancing girls. You're going to get me in trouble. All right. We are here for the purpose of growth. And as always, our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me in Luke chapter 12. Once again, Luke chapter 12. We've been here for some time now, actually. It's a chapter that has ten emphases. And uh, we are ready today for emphasis number seven. In Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. And the emphasis in this paragraph is on watchfulness. Luke 12, verses 35 through 48, on watchfulness. Be dressed and in readiness and keep your lamps lit. That's what we'll be looking at here starting this morning. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that each believer priest is filled with the Holy Spirit and with an attitude of humility to receive the word implanted, shall we pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And once again, the grace upon grace that keeps being poured out upon each one of us. Father, thank you for the grace that allowed us to be here today and to study your word. And I pray for concentration in a passage that sometimes gets misapplied or mistaught. Father, we want to understand what this verse is or what this context is truly about so that we can place it in its proper application And we want to find our legitimate application as church-age saints as well. So, Father, guide and direct our thinking. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, one other administrative item before we get started. Check your phones. (laughs) I'll check my phone. How about that? There we go. Today is May 20th. The day before some significant birthday of sorts. Yeah. All right. Phones off. Are we ready? All right. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. Be like men. Can't decide which one I'm going to read. They're both the same. (laughs) Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves." It goes on. In fact, let me read. Well, let's read the whole thing. Verse 39. Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, Who then? is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time. 
Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, My master will be long time in coming, and begins to beat his slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces. Does this sound pleasant? All right. Will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. All right, so there's a fair amount of doctrine in this passage. <laughs> we are going to take uh, a while to work our way through it to make sure we have the proper emphasis. We're going to back up, though, and handle the early portion from 35 through 38. Uh, in reality, there's this, even this one episode has some stages by which it's unfolded. Uh, a first telling, a second telling, and then based on Peter's question, then a third telling to work way through to make sure that these disciples understood what was expected of them in the application of imminency. All right, so let me get to our slideshow for today. You like him? That's... Uh, it is, actually. They're, they're all excited about this missing link. The evolutionists are all excited about, you know, we're related to that thing. That's... Uh, That's right. All right. Well, then, we are ready for point eight. No. There we are. Point nine. This is the emphasis on watchfulness. Now, keep in mind, what we're getting today is an introduction. We're getting, actually, a first taste. This is a theme that's going to come back and it's going to dominate the night before he's betrayed or the, the, uh, the days leading up to his betrayal. The Mount Olivet Discourse, uh, you know, just prior to his crucifixion, will feature this theme over and over and over again. And so many of these verses that we're reading through today, you're going to see them again in Matthew 24, Matthew 25, Matthew 26. So uh, stay tuned for that. I'll outline some of the uh, parallel passages when we get down to, oh, verse 39 or so, uh, because we have a parallel in, in Matthew 24. Likewise, in verses 41 through 46, there's another parallel there in a, a later stretch of Matthew 24. And so we'll outline those for you. This early part, though, about being dressed and in readiness is uh, unique to here. There's a similar passage though, that talks about virgins, wise virgins and foolish virgins, and they have lamps as well with wicks and, and oil, and uh, that is not this episode. We'll, we'll be handling that as well. And the reason why I want to be cautious with this is because it gets so misapplied. Everybody jumps here and says, oh, oh, this is rapture, this is rapture, this is church age application. It is not. We're not in the church yet. Church doesn't come until Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Jesus Christ is an Old Testament prophet that is in the stewardship of Israel. All right. So uh, just because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written in Greek and, and contained in our New Testament text 
don't lose sight of the fact the events that were described in those books are Old Testament events. The cross has not yet happened. The resurrection has not yet happened. The descent of the Holy Spirit on the body of Christ has not yet happened. Jesus Christ is an Old Testament prophet, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. Okay, He is an Old Testament prophet under the stewardship of Israel, and we want to understand that. His message is to Israel. He was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so we're going to see this here. All right, we start with uh, loins and lamps. Loins and lamps is what we start with. And the loins need to be girded and the lamps need to be lit. Amazingly enough, this is uh, the imperative that we have here on watchfulness. So subpoint A, this is if you sometimes I don't repeat these things well enough for the MP3 listeners. This is main point nine in the chapter twelve outline, emphasis number seven, watchfulness. Subpoint A now, loins and lamps illustrate the mental attitude of preparedness. Are you prepared? Are you, is your mindset one of imminent readiness and preparation? See, it needs to be. Not for the reasons he's giving Israel here, but for our own reasons. Okay? Our application is going to be a secondary application because we're not the recipients of this particular rebuke. However, we do live in an age of imminency. That is, the church age has an imminent event coming upon us called the rapture. And so, that while that's different from what we see in this chapter, there is a principle that relates. And that's where we find our application is going to uh, come into view. All right, loins and lamps. Now, if you're reading a New American Standard, you don't have loins here. You just have be dressed in readiness. But this is the old King James uh, gird your loins, all right, that Vice President Biden likes to quote. Um, gird your loins. And the expressiveness of this is um, lost in English translations. It's lost when you don't go through and you unfold what the paraphrastic uh, tense is all about. And that's what I'm going to try to do for you here this morning. The paraphrastic imperative you say, what in the world are you talking about? What is a paraphrastic imperative? And you say, Pastor, I came to church on a Wednesday morning to a family class. I want to learn something that's going to help my family. What's this paraphrastic imperative? Well, it's going to help. Let me show you how. It is an imperative of being. An imperative of being. And I don't know if that's an actual grammatical term or not, but it's my term. Because the verb, Amy, is the verb to be. This is the verb is. Okay? And Bill Clinton had a hard time understanding what is means. But we know what is means. We know if something is, then it is. And if something needs to be, then it better be. Remember, our God is the God of let there be. Let there be light. See? And there was light. And so when he issues a command of let there be, then it better be. And if it's something that he directly causes and creates, then obviously it is. But if it's something he's commanding a human being, you and I, or Israel in this case, if he's saying let there be and he's leaving it for human obedience, then you understand that it is a matter of utmost urgency. I wouldn't want to disobey any of God's commands. But the ones that he expresses in the language of let there be, us, 
you know, like I said, I don't want to disobey any of God's commands, but it seems like those would be the last ones I would disobey because that's the very language of sovereignty, the very language of creation. All right, so a periphrastic imperative is an imperative of being. The actual imperative of this verb is not dressed, is not lit, okay? And you can just look at the uh, terms here because... um, uh, you know, a lamp is a noun, and, and if you light the lamp, then lighting is the verb. And you think, okay, light your lamps. That's the imperative. The command is not light your lamps. Then the imperative is not gird your loins. Okay? In the sense of loins being a noun and, and gird being a verb. The, uh, the verbs are present there. They are found in this verse, but they're found as participles because the imperative, the command, is the verb to be. It's a third-person imperative to be. And this uh, perhaps is a little bit awkward for us, too, because in general common conversation here in the 21st century in the state of Texas, we don't typically utter imperatives in the third person. Okay, When we utter imperatives, I'm pretty sure it's the same with you as it is with me. We generally issue imperatives in the second person because we're speaking to somebody. Right? Clean your room. Brush your teeth. Take a bath. Okay? A lot of my imperatives are spoken to children. But any imperative we utter tends to be... Now, if you utter a third-person imperative, you have to use a helping word like let. Let it be. uh, Make it so. um, Let something be done. Okay? Uh, I mean, you... I suppose you could issue an imperative. Rooms will be cleaned today. Right? You know, that's, that's kind of impersonal. Let the rooms be cleaned. And so, you're not speaking to a person, but everybody gets the message. Right? And that's what's happening here. Let the loins be girded. And woe be unto anyone if they're not. Okay. Now, so, what I'm illustrating here doesn't happen a whole lot in our common conversation, but it's very common in the New Testament, common in Greek, these third-person imperatives. All right. Somebody asked me the other day, is there such a thing as a first-person imperative? Can you order yourself to do something? All right. Technically, you can, but usually at that point, it's phrased in the second person anyway because you're talking to yourself when you command yourself to do something. All right, let me switch over, then I'll highlight the different terms here. Be dressed in readiness. That's probably too small. Let's make it larger. Let's make it larger. What is that? That's a first-person plural imperative. Let us make it larger. All right. So we're looking for verse 35 here, Luke 12, 35. Be dressed in ready. See, I think this is a terrible... I mean, they're trying to... um, you know, make it idiomatic or communicate. And yes, the verb means to get dressed. I mean, if you're going to gird your loins, that means you're dressed. But it misses the uh, the point here in that uh, here the subject of the verb is in the in the first verb loins. Let's highlight here because this is your imperative right there. Estosan. When it says estosan, that is let it be 
or let them be, it's plural, let them be. That's the order. Let them be. Well, let what be? We've got a couple of uh, subjects. Osphuus, there's your loins. Hi, Osphuus, that's your first subject, and they've got to be wrapped about. And then hoi lunknoi, your lamps, that's the second object. Okay, both nominative plural. Loins are feminine for some reason. Lamps are masculine for some reason. Don't, don't ask me. But those are the subjects of your, of your participles. Okay. And because the uh, imperative is this present imperative of Amy. Let it be. Let them continuously be. And then the participles that complete the verb. Oh, what color do we want? Let's do lime green. Can you see those? Those are your participles that complete the be. Okay, because if I say let it be, they're just hanging out there. You've got to finish the be, right? Let something be explained. Let something be clear. Let something be obvious. You can't just let something be hanging. So, let them be. That's the order. And the loins have to be periazosmini. They have to be wrapped about, okay, or covered, or clothed, endued, dressed. And uh, the lamps have to be kaiaminoi. Uh, they have to be lit. You say, all right, be dressed and keep your lamps lit. Isn't that what the English says? <laughs> what are you illustrating here? Here's the, here's the difference, okay? He's not saying dress yourself. He's saying be dressed. He's not saying turn the lights on. He's saying keep the lights on. The lights must be on. See, it's the difference between get dressed and be dressed. If that, if that helps. He doesn't say dress yourself. Because if you say dress yourself, well, then okay, that's simple enough. All right, fine, I'll, I'll get dressed and then I'm done. I mean, as soon as I obey, then it's over, right? But he says be having been dressed. Continuously be having been dressed. That might help. Okay, Continuously be having been dressed. Because if you're dressed, you're ready. You're ready to serve. You're ready to... Uh, because the imagery here is uh, he's, he's about to come and he's going to knock on the door. And you don't open the door if you're not dressed, right? <laughs> you don't, particularly if you're the slave that's there to wait upon the master when he comes back. So your day is not done until the master's in bed. Until then you can get undressed. Then you can go to bed yourself. But as long as the master's still awake, then you've got to stay dressed. You're still on duty. So, in any event, this, these paraphrastic verbs, they come up, and when they come up, they're usually very, very vivid, and they're usually um, communicating something that um, oftentimes gets lost. In other words, be dressed in readiness. Continuously be in a having-been-dressed-and-ready circumstance. Continuously be in a having-been-dressed circumstance. And... Um, continuously be um, in, a, in a situation with the already having been lit lamps. All right? Because if, if you're in the dark 
and that door's knocking and you're scrambling around trying to find, you know, where you put the matches or where you put the lamp or where's the wicks and where's the oil and, you know, fumbling around in the dark trying to get the thing lit so you can get to the door. Lamp should have been lit in the first place. Say, if they were already lit, you can walk right to the door. Same thing if you're already dressed. This, by the way, is what you have in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you are presently, continuously now. The verb in there is you are presently now, today, having been saved ones. Okay, it's not, the verb there isn't uh, you were saved. You are having been saved ones. And it's paraphrastic present there at that point. So the vividness of it becomes important. Loins and lamps. Today, see, the command is given to presently, continuously be having been dressed. Continuously, presently, let the lamps be lit. All right? Because if they're not lit, you're late. (laughs) They need to be lit now. If you're not dressed now, well, then get dressed because you're supposed to have been already dressed today. And that's the, uh, the impact on that. Now, note, this is not a dispensation of the church message for primary application. This is not a dispensation of the church message for primary application. And we have our own concepts, of course, that are given in the epistles for imminency. But this is not our passage. This is very Jewish in every respect. Considering, of course, remember the aspect of their Passover out of Egypt. Remember they were to be dressed in readiness. Remember they, they weren't even to sit down. They were to stand up while they were eating and, and, and be prepared with that haste because the Lord was delivering them out of Egypt on that very night. See, you know, the next morning. So... This, uh, this idea of dressed in readiness is very consistent with uh, Jewish scriptures, with Old Testament imagery. Only so far as the imminency principle pertains to the rapture do we find secondary application from this text. Only so far as the imminency principle. The imminency principle. Yes, we function under an imminency principle. The rapture can come today. It can come before the end of this class. It can come before the end of this sentence. Say, any moment we can hear that trumpet. And because of that, when we find principles of imminency, even in passages that don't, uh, aren't directed to us, we clearly can draw the secondary application because the principle is consistent. I hope we can understand that. The... Um, I think what happens, though, is believers get confused and they try to take a passage and instead of drawing secondary application, they put themselves in there and they try to draw primary application. See, the whole movement of believers that are confused over the theocratic instructions to Israel as if somehow that applies to us. As if somehow we're going to try to turn the United States of America into a Christian nation under Old Testament theocratic verses. What are we really doing? If it's primary, we make, we make primary application. If it's secondary, we make secondary application. It's a fundamental issue of Bible interpretation. All right. Point B then. 
Israel's simile for imminency is dispensationally instructive. There's a simile here where they are to be like. And what are they to be like? Men who are waiting for their master. They're called men in verse 36. They're called slaves in verse 37. Same master in both verses. And uh, this is the principle of what we're looking at. But it's dispensationally instructive. Meaning that if we read through the details of these verses, we can actually learn quite a bit about Israel's stewardship, quite a bit about our stewardship as a contrast, because the things they're not entitled to, we are. And also, I think we can even find a definition of stewardship here that I have not seen in Ryrie or Schofield or Schaefer or uh, any uh, dispensational readings that I can recall anyway. Because we find here a uh, function of stewardship being defined here. Who is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Understand that a primary activity for stewardship is feeding responsibilities. Like the Lord told Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my lambs. uh, (laughs) A big role of stewards is to teach the Word of God. You realize that we are the communicators of the Word of God in this lost and dying world. You know, we're not uh, we're not reigning yet. We're not uh, calling the political shots. We're communicating the Word of God. It's a function of stewardship. I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's just what jumped out at me in reading it a few moments ago. Now, let me ask you something. Weddings are fun, right? Went to a wedding last Saturday. Weddings are great. We went, um, and uh, it was different because I wasn't performing the service. <laughs> I was not officiating the uh, the wedding. I would have liked to, but that's all right. I was sitting there with my wife and observing and then watching and even thought about taking some notes. <laughs> um, what am I illustrating? Oh, a wedding... When you're invited, and when you are welcome, and when you belong there, and you're there, is a joyous time. It's a celebration. These slaves aren't invited. The point of this parable, the people that are being addressed, in other words, the believers that need to make the primary application in this passage, are not invited. They're still home. They're still back in the house while the master's at the wedding. See? And they're waiting for the master to come back when the wedding's done. Okay? Does that relate to the church in some way? Are we going to be missing this wedding? (laughs) How does this work? Okay? But remember, this is why it's dispensationally instructive. Because the wedding of the Lamb... The wedding, and it can't be thoroughly developed here because the pride is still mystery. The church is mystery in in Luke chapter 12. But Jesus is going to come for his bride, you and I. We're going to be caught up in the air. We're going back to the Father's house. Is Israel going to be there for that? They're going to be on earth going through tribulation, right? And when he comes back, 
they better be dressed in readiness. They better have their lamps lit. Okay? These principles of imminency in these contexts apply to the tribulation. They apply to the great day of the Lord's wrath. They apply to the, to the things coming up in, in what we call, uh, you know, in, in prophetic studies of, of the tribulation. So let's uh, start spelling this out. But understand the uh, um, distinctions between Israel and the church are critical. And when you blur them, then you just muddy the waters in, in every passage. All right. These slaves aren't going to the wedding, but the master is. That becomes, I think, rather uh, significant. So that's the first observation. There's five of these I'm going to give you this morning. They are not entitled to attend the wedding feast. Now, the vocabulary here is interesting. Now, the master is there. Um, in the parable, it doesn't tell us that it's actually his wedding. So it doesn't spell out whether he's the groom or whether he's a guest or whether he's the the father who's hosting the wedding for his son. This passage does not tell us. There are later parables in the um, Mount Olivet Discourse and elsewhere. There are later parables that will talk about a king giving a wedding feast for his son. And in those passages, then it really gets obvious what the, uh, what the typology is communicating there because God the Father is the one responsible for providing this feast, celebration for his son. Vocabulary is interesting. The term is gamos, G-A-M-O-S, gamos, number 1062. And you know all the gamos terms, like um, polygamos, right? Polygamy, polygamos. If you're married to more than one person, you're a polygamist. You're a polygamosist. Monos, gamos, monogamy. Okay, married to one. Anyway, gamos. Now, it's an interesting thing. Not always followed, not always observed, but the singular, when gamos is the singular, it represents the wedding ceremony itself. When gamos is plural, uh, it doesn't reference plural weddings, but what it does reference is the uh, multitude of feasting that takes place after the wedding. And so, uh, you know, like today we would say you have the wedding service followed by the Reception, okay, and uh, in the Greek, at least in the in this era of of the Greek language, they didn't have separate words. They just used the singular gamos for the ceremony and the plural for the uh, feasting and celebrating and and carrying on and so forth. Um, they used the plural for that. And what we have here is the plural, okay? Ekton gamon is the text, if I remember correctly. Um, yes, ekton gamon, and they have to be ready to onaluo when he comes back. Ekton gamon, that's plural, from the festivities, from the wedding festivities. And how long is that going to take? Well, who knows? I mean, some of those celebrations can... Uh, yeah, they can delay, can't they? And linger and, and you know, one thing after another after another. I mean, you got to cut the cake and you got to, you know, the first drink a punch where you link the arms around. And you got to, I mean, we've got all these rituals, right? I mean, all these traditions and throwing the, what do you call that thing? The Yeah, the bouquet, okay? And all these other traditions, 
They had different ones back in Bible times. Okay, probably better than ours. But they, like us, could just keep talking and talking and talking and fellowshipping and fellowshipping. Because what happens at these kind of things? You end up seeing people you haven't seen in ages. All right? In ages. And so the fellowship is, is wonderful and the, the, the sense of family is, is um, intimate and beautiful. And, and so the slaves, I imagine when the master left, maybe they asked, maybe he said, you know, when, what time are you expected back or whatever. No way to know. On a night like this, there's no way to know. Is it going to be the second hour, the second watch, the third watch? No way to know. There's the uh, aspect of imminency there because there's no way to know. Now, it does limit it to second or third watch, and we'll talk about that here, the Roman method of breaking up the night. But we'll talk about that here in a moment. Point being, though, why aren't they with him? They're not, yeah, they're still back at the house. He's at the wedding. He's the one in the festivities. Now, there's going to be a change once he comes back. In fact, I imagine these slaves are going to be pretty shocked to uh, have the master come back and then all of a sudden he starts waiting on them and serving them. And they're going to be like, oh, what's going on here? This is different. Something got into you at this wedding feast. (laughs) What's that? Okay. I believe it's um, dispensationally instructive because there is going to be a significant change to Israel when their master returns from the wedding feast. It's going to be a wonderful change for Israel. They're going to go from tribulation to reigning. They're going to go from mourning to rejoicing. They're going to exchange their garments of sackcloth and and ashes for the wedding garments of everything that Isaiah talks about. This millennial kingdom is going to be amazing for Israel, the ones that had been enslaved under bondage of the law, you understand. They're going to be ushered into not just their Messiah, See, Messiah came first time, right, compared to Messiah coming second time. Messiah came first time and they crucified him. Messiah comes second time, he reigns on the throne. But more than that, he come, when he comes second time, he's not coming alone. He is coming with a bride, the church, you and I, the body of Christ. And so Israel then, after second advent, with not only a messianic king, but with his bride, is in for some amazing new blessings they never would have dreamed of before. And um, I think there's a lot here. We'll, we'll deal with this. But, um, you know, the language here is similar to... Uh, imagine how shocking it was for, for the 11 or the 12 when Jesus wrapped himself about and started washing their feet. What's What's going to be the reaction of the Jewish nation when well we're going to see here when the master comes back he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them what is that addressing prophetically for the nation of Israel after the second advent of Jesus Christ it's going to be interesting alright so they're not entitled to attend the wedding feast um, we are okay and we don't attend as guests either. We attend as participants. <laughs> okay, the the guests receive the invitation. The bride doesn't get an invitation. Maybe you never thought about that. The bride doesn't get an invitation. 
Yeah, she's part of the one. Yeah, she's in the party, the wedding party, issuing the invitation. So when you read that passage about blessed are those that are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, that's not the church. We're not invited. You know, Marcy Blair was not invited to the wedding last Saturday. She was in the wedding last Saturday. So. Secondly, they are to be prepared for his welcome homecoming after the wedding feast. They are to be prepared for his welcome homecoming after the wedding feast. means they've got to be dressed. means the light's got to be on. It's like the Motel 6 commercials, right? <laughs> we'll leave the light on for you. The master, when he's coming back, it doesn't matter how late it is, second, second watch, third watch, it doesn't matter. He's going to be knocking on the door and the slaves better have that door open and not leave him out there on the porch, on the street, standing outside his own door, can't get in. All right? You know, they didn't get out of a 21st century American mindset. They didn't have uh, clickers or, you know, you didn't uh, unlock your own front door and click the alarm on or off or, or anything like that. You had slaves. That's what they did. See, the, um, well, don't get me going on that. I'm reading these Roman history uh, novels and they're, they're very instructive just in, in just the daily life of, of running a household. And uh, managing the slaves and managing the the uh, everything is, is extraordinary reading. I'm enjoying it quite a bit. But they're to be prepared for his welcome homecoming after the wedding feast. Now that's a preparation different from our preparation. What are we preparing for? See, remember, ours, it's kind of backwards for us because he's preparing our place. <laughs> we have to be ready for him to come and take us to his preparations. Right here, it's kind of the other way around because they're waiting for him to come back. But they're the ones that have the preparations made. They're the ones that are keeping the house in order. They're the ones that uh, have the tables ready and, and uh, are ready to open the door. The lamps are lit. Uh, everything is set for him to come to his residence that they've been they've been maintaining his residence. And when he returns, they're going to be rewarded for how well they've maintained his residence. In what state of readiness his residence is. See, and if they've been abusive and if they've been uh, disobedient, then they're going to face consequences for that. With us, it's the other way around because he's the one preparing the residence. I go to prepare a place for you. All right? And uh, when, he, when we meet him in the air and he takes us back to the Father, we're going to see everything that he's been preparing now for 2,000 years. And I've got to think that uh, it's got to be powerful. I mean, think about it. He made the universe in six days. Now he's been spending 2,000 years fixing up our place. Man, you ever get that any thought? So, again, dispensationally instructive here. This is addressed to Israel. This is their message. This is their application. Thirdly, they are happy. They are blessed, but it's not eulogetos blessing, it's makarios blessing. So it's happy blessed. Happy blessed are the slaves whom the master will discover to be watchful, 
whom the master will discover to be watchful. Vocabulary for this is Gregoreo. Gregoreo, where we get the name Gregory. I don't know if you've ever known any Gregory. There's a couple of popes named Gregory. And, uh, in fact, Gregory the Great and a bunch of popes named Gregory, at least seven. Um, maybe more. Gregoreo, number 1127 in the Strong's Concordance, used 23 times in the New Testament. And Gregoreo, it even comes from the same stem that, uh, like, Egero to raise up, to wake up. Uh, even Egero that's used in terms of raising the dead, but literally, agero just means to, to raise, to, to be awakened, and it's used of anybody that wakes up in the morning. He, what does he do when you wake up? You get up. Okay? Agero. And um, that's the uh, etymology behind gregoreo, is that you keep yourself awake. You keep yourself raised. You keep yourself alert. You know, the antonym then, or the opposite, is you don't let yourself go to sleep. Okay. And so if you're watchful, if you're on the alert, then you are obedient to this expectation. Now, you'll note, of course, all of the uses here in the Gospels. In uh, Matthew 24, 25, and 26, what's that? Crucifixion. That's the, all of the discourse leading up to the crucifixion, the crucifixion itself. All of the imperatives there at the end of Matthew. The parallel text in Mark, Mark 13 and 14. We have our reference here in Luke 12. But look where else we have it for church application. For church application. And then back to Israel in Revelation 16. Alright, so if you're here live in class, you have benefit of looking at the screen and writing them down yourself. But Gregoreo, 23 times in the New Testament. In Matthew 24, you got verses 42 and 43. In chapter 25, verse 13. Chapter 26 is verses 38, 40, and 41. And those are the ones we can look at. Uh, over in Mark, it's chapter 13, verses 34, 35, 37, largely parallel to the Matthew record. And in uh, Mark 14, is verses 34, 37, 38. Of course, in Luke, we have it here in Luke 12, 37. Luke, the author, also uses the term in Acts chapter 20 and verse 31. Acts 20, 31. That's the powerful message in Acts 20 when Paul's talking to the elders of Ephesus to be aware of the savage wolves that will come in. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Colossians 4, 2. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 6 and 10. 1 Peter 5, 8. Revelation 3, verses 2 and 3. This is the church of Sardis and he's to wake up and strengthen the things that remain. The church that has a name that's alive, but it's really dead. And then Revelation 16:15, back to a dispensation of Israel context for that last one. All right, so let's take a look at these and go over to Matthew 24 with me here. Now in Matthew 24... They're coming out of the temple and the disciples are pointing out the temple buildings to him. And he talks about the temple's destruction. And then they go up to the Mount of Olives in verse 3. And they have a question for him. The disciples come to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming 
and of the end of the age. Three parts to that question. And in the Mount Olivet Discourse here in Matthew, you get two of those parts answered. The middle part gets answered over in the Luke parallel. We're going to uh, spend a lot of time in this section of the uh, life of Christ, assuming we're still here that long to get to this verse. Um, But notice verse 4. See to it that no one misleads you. Eschatological teaching with reference to Second Advent, with reference to end times, reference to uh, tribulation and Second Advent, millennium, all these things. They're right, first of all, just for confusion in general, but then they're ripe, secondly, for intentional, satanic, misleading. So when Jesus gives the warning, see to it that no one misleads you, we better pay attention. This is a study that takes work. And then goes on to outline the different things that happen here. Now, uh, note that it's future. Note that uh, even the signs of the times that you see are simply the beginning of birth pangs in verse 8. They're just the little clues that, uh, you know, that full, uh, you're not even in the full scale labor at this point. It's just the beginning of birth pangs. So don't get all wild over things that you see. And then, of course, global persecution and the uh, attempt the attempt to uh, eradicate the jewish people is seen there in verse 9 and following verse 15 jesus says uh, that daniel's uh, message of the abomination of desolation is still future so if any idiot tries to convince you that daniel's deal there was fulfilled with antiochus epiphanes in the third century bc then just tell them they're an idiot and Jesus knows better than they do. And uh, Jesus said, right there in verse 15, put your finger on it, Jesus said that it hasn't happened yet. It's still future from his standpoint in 33 AD. All right. Anyway, down to then tribulation. We've got corpses and vultures in verse 28. You've got the sun darkened and the moon and the stars falling from heaven in verse 29. You've got the sign of the Son of Man coming. You've got the, uh, the great power of His second advent and the warfare that takes place. All of this is tribulational. All of this is future. Um, in verses 36 through 41, you've got this snatching that some people think is rapture, but it can't be because it's tribulational. The principles of alertness down to then verse 42. So therefore, be on the alert. Gregoreo. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Second Advent. It's the most prophesied event in Old Testament, New Testament alike. And yet, because of the mercy of God, he's going to cut short the days of his wrath. The mercy of God is going to cut short the days of his wrath. They're on a calendar. The 70th week is unfolding. They signed a treaty with Antichrist. He betrayed that treaty halfway through. Well, Golly gee willikers, uh, I think Daniel said he was going to do that, right? 600 years before Christ. But yet, so they can count the days. They know when that 70th week is going to end. They know when the 1,260th day is going to arrive. And yet, they don't know the exact day because he's coming back early. That's right. He's going to cut short those days for the sake of the elect. He's going to come back early. And they don't know the day. They don't know the hour. They just know... Whether it's the second watch or the third watch, morning is on the way. And he's going to be here before morning. 
understanding, of course, mourning being the metaphor for second advent and the coming kingdom. So be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this. If the head of the house had known what time of the night the thief was coming, he would not. He would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. That identical language what we already saw in Luke 12. If you know the burglar's coming at this at this day, at this time, he's sneaking in through this window. Well, where are you going to be and what are you going to be doing? Right? You and Smith and Wesson. All right. For this reason, you also must be ready. And I like the way that watchfulness is tied to readiness. Because, yes, you're on the alert. Yes, you see it coming. But not only seeing it coming, you've got to do something about it. Once you see it coming, you've got to take the appropriate action. All right. Next chapter over, chapter 25. Notice in this chapter is where you have the virgins. There's ten virgins. Five of them are foolish. Five of them are prudent. And uh, the ones that don't have oil, you know, by the time he comes, it's too late. Quit trying to run out to H-E-B and grab some oil real quick. Too late. Should have already had the oil. At midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom. But down to verse 13 then. And see, here's something interesting too, because we've got to find out what's going to happen to these fools that aren't ready. What's going to happen to these fools? See. Now, this is where it's different than the church. Because if you're a foolish church age saint, out of fellowship, carnal, not growing, been blowing off doctrine for years, you're still going to get raptured. Okay? Because... The, uh, the, the consequences of our imminency or the elements of our, of our event, our imminent event, are uh, going to come upon us whether we're ready for it or not. Okay? We will be snatched. We will be uh, raptured up. Harpazo will happen to us whether you're ready for it or not. In these guys' case, if they're not ready for it, they face some serious uh, disappointment <clears throat> because they're not going to make it in. Not into the kingdom you understand well we'll outline this because <coughs> some people really really struggle with the idea of um, being excluded from some things that they feel they are otherwise entitled to so uh the fools the foolish virgins that didn't have the oil uh they they show up too late and um everybody else has already gone in the door was shut and so the other virgins also came lord lord open up for us and he said, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day or the hour. So what does it mean to be assigned a place, to be cut up in pieces and assigned a place with the unbelievers? Right, we're going we're gonna to have to be careful with that because of the way it's abused and mistaught. Some, you know, obviously the Arminians say, well, that means you lose your salvation. And you just go, you know, with all the rest of the unbelievers. No, let's, let's understand it biblically. So be on the alert then. Gregoreo in Matthew 25. Over to chapter 26. And um, in the garden. In the garden. Came to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter the two sons of Zebedee began to be grieved and distressed. Now, why did he only take those three? 
You know, we understand Judas was already gone out there betraying him, but he still had 11. He had 11, but only three come to prayer meeting. It's almost like a Bible church. All right. And so he takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and Gregoreo. Remain here and keep watch with me. In other words, get busy praying. Say, well, what do you need me to pray with you for? You can pray by yourself. You don't need me. You're a believer priest. Pray with me. Keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them, fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came back to the disciples and he found them sleeping. Remember, what's the etymology behind Gregoreo? Keep yourself awake. Keep on the alert. Keep watchful. And uh, sleep is not part of that. And, and so he said to Peter, So you men could not Gregoreo with me for one hour. Keep Gregoreoing and praying that you may not enter into temptation. What's he telling them there? What's he concerned about for himself? Why does he want them praying with him? Remember, as in deity, he can't sin. But what's he concerned about here? In his own, the testing of his own faith, in his own obedience. Keep praying that you may not enter into temptation. That's what he's faced with here, his own temptations. And he wants them praying for him. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And here's Christ having to face this test. That's not my will, but thine be done test in his humanity. And does he know whether he's going to have victory or not? Is he tapping into some omniscience here to find out how he's going to pass this test? So he goes away a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. He's passed the test. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, but he endured and Lined up his will to the Father's will. He comes back and finds them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. All right, so this is uh, the principle here. In the Mark passages, they're largely parallel to what we've already read. We won't turn there. We've already read Luke 12. Let's go to Acts chapter 20 and verse 31. Let's try to let's grab these church passages and. Uh, Knock these out before the top of the hour. How about that? Acts chapter 20. So, everything there in the Gospels is Jewish. Israel, their stewardship. Alright? But now we get into the book of Acts. We're past chapter 2. We're past the day of Pentecost. We're into the church age now. And we find imminency is, is a valid principle for us as well. And watchfulness is an imperative for us as well. Realize watchfulness has been an imperative for every stewardship. Adam and Eve in innocence were put in the garden and told to be on watch to guard the Garden of Eden. Didn't do so well, did they? Acts 20.31 He says um, he's on his way to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, he's warning the elders that they're going to deal with some angelic conflict after he's gone. 
He says in verse 25, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Because I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Paul says, I did not hide anything. I didn't duck any issues. I didn't dodge anything. I dished it out. Gave it to you straight from the text. And so my hands are clean. You've got to live the doctrine you've been given. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. See, the elders, overseers, shepherds, pastors, they've got to guard themselves first from themselves, and then they can guard the flock from the wolves. Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So here we see that the principles of Gregoreo, the principles of being on the alert that are given in the Gospels for Israel's application are valid in the church for church application. We see right here that in the, in the context of the church, we must be on guard. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise. Even some of the men he was talking to were going to uh, cause problems. Later on, we see some of that because we see uh, we, they get named in Second Timothy, First and Second Timothy, some of these Ephesus troublemakers. Uh, notice speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Isn't it interesting? False teachers always have a motivation as to steal people away and make a name for themselves. Therefore, Gregoreo, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I do not cease to admonish, admonish each one with tears. I've wondered about that. I've wondered about daily teaching. If we've got some dark days ahead, is the Lord going to direct for this congregation and many congregations across this country to get serious about daily teaching? And it's not just, notice it's night and day. Could you imagine this 10 o'clock hour? Not just on Wednesdays, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Because our nation's under maximum discipline. We've got to get knuckled down into concentrated teaching. And evening sessions. It's not just daytime, it's night and day. Evening sessions. Anyway, when you're under maximum persecution and conflict, there's a provision. So be on the alert in the church age application. 1 Corinthians 16.13. I'm already at the top of the hour. How would that happen? 1 Corinthians 16.13. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. You have a pentad there. A, a uh, pentateuch. you got a five-part imperative there that closes the book of 1 Corinthians. And it starts with Gregoreo. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. I think these are the orders of the day for the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. These are the imperatives we're under all day, every day. Uh, Colossians 4.2 See, being watchful is an imperative for church-age saints. And the... The means by which you can stay prayer, uh, to stay watchful is prayer meeting. That's right, prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. It doesn't say devote yourself to Bible study, although there's other verses that, of course, devote yourself to Bible study. Yeah, 
be eager to show yourself approved before God's face, rightly dividing the word of truth. But here is devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well. So your alertfulness will come through prayer. First Thessalonians five, verses six and ten. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Uh, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we are Gregorio or asleep at the switch, we will live together with him. That's why I said, for our application, um, if we're not alert, we, uh, we're not like the foolish virgins uh, you know, knocking on the door after it's all said and done. We get yanked, we get raptured, whether we're Gregorio or not. Still, don't use that as a license to not be on the alert. You want to be on the alert. You're commanded to be on the alert. First Peter 5.8. I cite this frequently in dismissing the uh, assembly on a Sunday or other occasions. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him in your faith. Resist him. Now, I find it amazing believers think, oh, yeah, just resist the devil. He'll flee from you. As if they can claim that verse as some kind of a magic spell and they're not claiming the totality of it because they're not on the alert. They're not resisting. All right, real quickly then, I'm keeping you along. Uh, Revelation 3, 2 and 3. This is uh, the church of Sardis. You have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. How many churches have reputations? Oh, we're... We're big, we're growing, we're, we're alive. Great place to come. That's the reputation of their name. The reality, as far as Jesus Christ is concerned, they're dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain. See, they're only mostly dead. Strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. The last one is back to Israel's application in chapter 16. And um, as the battle of Armageddon is uh, gearing up and the anti-trinity is gathering their forces the whole cosmos is gathered together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. All right, I'm out of time. We'll, uh, there's two more dispensational uh, issues under point B and then we'll move on under C, D, E, and F to handle the rest of this uh, passage on watchfulness. Father, thank you for this day. And we, uh, we're mindful that we may not be here next week to finish points C, D, E, and F. Uh, Father, we can hear a trumpet long before then. And I, I ask that we do, Father. This, uh, this world is dark and getting darker. And, um, and yet, as impatient as we are, Father, uh, we have loved ones and family members that are still without Christ. So in this last day of mercy... Uh, equip us and motivate us. Give us the open door opportunities to proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world. 
Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for your grace and your favor. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.